I'm back. Hi, everyone. It's Amy Rosenberg with Street Talk, a podcast about real estate and community produced by Veracity, a marketing firm. So I think you probably thought I was just going to bail on this project, huh? I wasn't sure either. I mean, you just never really know how things are going to go. I mean, the the uh, East Moreland project, it all kind of fell together really easily. Um, but it was kind of a whirlwind producing all of those in six weeks. And so I had to take a little break. But, you know, I can't stay away for too long because there's issues in the community. And right now I want to focus on hunger. And so I spoke with Kyle Camberg, who is the executive director of the Sunshine Division, which is a really interesting organization. They've been around forever and they're kind of like part of, well, they're not part of the Portland Police, but they, that is a partner of theirs. And they were started by the Portland Police. And so we get a lot of history and of how that started like over 90 years ago um, or something like that. And I've worked with Kyle forever um, because not, not like he's a client or anything, but you know, when I'm PRing different corporations that want to be involved in the community, I always call Kyle because he understands how PR people think and what we need, you know, to make a community campaign go off really smoothly. And I remember a couple years ago when I was working with Kyle, I was standing in the middle of the warehouse and it was like I had deja vu. I realized I had been there before. Just so you know, they feed people. That's why they have a warehouse. They have a food bank. Um, They go out into schools to kind of assess the need and figure out how they can tell people about their organization, um, and they're opening a new location out in Rockwood, um, that area, because, you know, right now they're on North Interstate, which, you know, for a while that was good, and they're still going to keep that location, but North Interstate's kind of hot right now. (laughs) I mean, it's really hot, and so people are saying poverty is moving east. Um, and so a lot of the nonprofits are having to open up second locations over there um, so that they can be where the need is. And luckily, um, the Sunshine Division is going to have a location there. And I think I was the first to find this out publicly. I don't think it's been announced yet. So I'm pretty honored to have that knowledge. But anyway, back to the memory. So I was in the middle of the warehouse and realized I'd been there before as a kid. So my dad actually was a cop for about six months, Um, and then he went to law school and he became a lawyer. Yeah, privilege. I mean, he he was lucky. We were lucky he could do that, but he was still, as a lawyer, he was still with the government. He was a DA, and then he went over to the feds, so he always worked with cops, Um, and so we had a lot of police officer friends, and Um, I remember once I was in a car driving around with these ladies who were talking to me about jazzercise and that I never would need a perm. And wasn't I lucky because of that? (laughs) It was the 80s, you know. And these women were wives of police officers. And we were driving food around the town in a car. And... And then, you know, I just didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, I remember that it was, it felt really good to be giving back in that way. It felt like I had accomplished something that day. But then 
being in that warehouse, I realized, oh, we were volunteering for the Sunshine Division. Um, and it was amazing. And I don't even remember when it was that we did that, but I hope it was not in December. Because as Kyle talks about, hunger is seasonal. And so a lot of people talk, oh, no, it's not seasonal. <laughs> hunger is not seasonal. That's his phrase. Because people talk about, you know, volunteering and what are they going to do? How are they going to get food to the needy in December? Which is nice, but they need food year round. And especially in the summer when kids that um, qualify are not able to get free or reduced lunch and breakfast at schools, how are they going to get the food? So this is where I have a ton of fun with PR campaigns where we try and get that education out there. I mean, that's what this is about. So we talk about the Sunshine Division, but it's more about education, about hunger and the, the hurdles and the need, especially for these kids and these families. And what's going to happen with Portland Public Schools when they're talking about um, making changes to their food program? Um, we're going to get into that. There's some things going on with Portland Public Schools that might make it harder for needy families to get their food um, at the school. And so I think we're going to be, not only are we going to talk to Kyle about that, but we're going to, you know, it's a deep dive. That's what we do. So we're going to be focusing on hunger for a while and talking to other people in the community about it so that we can all be aware and learn how we can help. Thank you for sticking with me. Start with you telling me about the Sunshine Division. Great. So um, in 1923, so over 90 years ago, um, a couple of different activities took place with Portland police officers that were sort of the genesis or the beginning of the concept of local law enforcement helping people. And one of them was a wife of a captain saw a widowed mother and her children living in a lean-to, essentially camping outside. And... Uh, like a good person, she told her husband to do something about that. <laughs> and so this officer went around, collected money, and got some food, and got some clothing, helped help the family out. Um, and so that officer sort of became part of what he, he did a little bit, making sure that they had food and some basic needs to help people in the community. Second part was, um, in the early 1920s, you had the first uh, Portland Police Reserves. It was actually uh, the the invention or the availability of automobiles uh, becoming uh, more readily available and cheaper led to a bunch of police officers getting laid off because cops mm -hmm. used to go two by two everywhere across the city. And so with cars, you needed fewer cops. And so many World War I vets that had come back from the war who were police officers got laid off and went back to doing whatever they did, probably pre-World War I, but many of them formed uh, the first reserve group and the reserve group and some Portland police officers took food out on Christmas Eve in Goose Hollow. So in the early 1920s, Goose Hollow was apparently a 
tough part yeah, of town. Things for them. change now. Yeah, things change. <laughs> as we'll talk about. As we'll talk about, about. <laughs> a little more. It continues to change. And so after this, the 1923, my understanding is 1923 was the second or third year that that occurred. And kind of like I would say, if you're the person that hosts, say, like Thanksgiving or the Fourth of July, you know, if you're a person that hosts a gathering for your family, after you've done it a few times, it becomes a tradition. Mm-hmm. And so about 1923, as the stories go, it was it'd been a couple of times of doing this, and it really became a tradition. The, the media caught hold of it, and they sort of dubbed these officers and these reserve the Sunshine Boys. Oh, okay. And that then uh, morphed into the Bureau saying, we should really do this all the time, not just at the holidays or not just when somebody finds out about a particular family. And so the name Sunshine Division came about, and mm-hmm. it was actually a very tiny, more of what we call like a unit today, um, but they called it the Sunshine Division, and in the downtown precinct in the 1920s, there was a room that had clothing, and it had food, and so that a police officer at any time could take food out somewhere, clothing out someone in need. And that was the, the start of the organization, just because a couple of really nice acts of kindness and Fast forward about 30 or so years later, the organization then became a 501c3, and as a, uh, we have a retired police commander who is 97, said to me, still alive. Wait, so he, oh, Lewis, he said to you. He I said to he me, said to they uh-huh. incorporated the organization so that a politician could not screw it up, end quote. That's <laughs> a former kind of something like a police officer. Yeah, <laughs> But it still was essentially just run by the police, and slowly over time, some civilians got added to the staff. But a police officer, a sergeant, was always in charge, kind of the de facto executive director. Um, we were then located in North Portland in a building that's no longer there. It was knocked down and became low-income housing. And in 1975, we moved into the facility we're at on Thompson Street, which is not far from the Rose Quarter and the Moda Center. And that's where and we are right now. We've been here ever since. Yeah. And six years ago, I was hired as the first civilian executive director. So I'm the first non-police officer to lead the organization. And and so you have over 90 years of whether it's civilians and or police or both having, uh, sourcing, accessing, putting food together and clothing together and distributing that out to the community. And the, the unique or the thing that's completely, you know, just sunshine division is police officers still to this day have food boxes and precincts. Police officers, uh, since 1981, have taken kids school clothes shopping from a fund that we raise here called our Izzy's Kids Fund. We still honor that, that tradition that started in the 1920s of taking food boxes on the holidays. Now, it's not just people with baskets of food on foot in Goose Hollow. It's actually 3,500 households that we serve, and the police bureau still helps us with that. Um, police officers refer approximately 1,000 people to our facility or so. So we have the world's, or in terms of nonprofit, the most unique partnership and the most unique volunteer base in that police officers are programmatic volunteers mm-hmm. for the Central Division. We're, they're a partner of ours, and you, you won't see that anywhere else. And that's wonderful to show a police officer in a different light than some people might kind of expect. Yeah, and it's a resource for them as well. I mean, I, I'm not, uh, I've never been a city employee. I don't have anyone in my family that's a cop. Uh, they need tools. I mean, who who shows up when you call 911 or when there's an emergency or an accident? It's a firefighter and a police officer, typically, or sometimes just a police officer. And oftentimes they're showing up for things that are related to poverty, things that are related to addiction, domestic violence, um, lots of things that people don't really like to think about or talk about. And a police officer shows up, and they, they need tools to deal with these situations. And the Sunshine Division becomes a tool for them because... If it's an issue of a family 
that doesn't have food, they don't have resources, the kids need proper clothing for school, we're here for them. Mm -hmm. And we make it really turnkey and really simple for the officers to access the services. And you have a food bank here, right? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so six days a week in our facility here, it's this old, you know, it's almost a 90-year-old warehouse that we've repurposed a few times. We have a a food pantry here that's open Monday through Saturday, approximately 13,000 households access at. So that's our busiest or, I guess, the largest thing we do is people come directly to us to access the food pantry. Uh, you know, your average family might leave, leave with 85 pounds of basically a grocery cart full of food here, a lot of staples, real basic foods. Um, and then we also have a clothing resource room. And so the concept of a pantry or having a clothing resource room is not unique. Unfortunately, it's very common. What's different about ours is everything we do here is completely free. Um, there's never any charge or you know requirement to be a part of what we do. Also, we're open six days a week. Most food relief organizations are, are have very limited hours, particularly really small school or church pantries and yeah, things which, like that. And that's hard for people to get there when they're trying to hold down multiple jobs and Cor- what happens. Correct, and that's why we a few years ago we used to just be open five days. We started opening on Saturdays because, if you, like I said, if you hold down a nine to five. When are you going to make it over here? Mm-hmm. The answer is it makes it really difficult. So we try to be really accessible. And then after hours, the other part is our food boxes are in all the police precincts here in Portland. Um, we also distribute some boxes to some other county sheriff's departments, a few other police departments as well. They're in Portland police. They have these sort of rest uh, areas, for lack of a better term, where there's secure spaces where cops can take a break, do paperwork, and make sure they're there as well. So the hope is that 24-7, if someone's in need, they're able to access us, mm-hmm. whether it's after hours with the Portland police officer or Monday through Saturday at our facility here. And then do people have to qualify to use the services or how does that all yeah, work? That's a great question. So a lot of organizations, you know, any organization can have any form of qualifier if they want. It's up to them. For Sunshine Division, ours are, are pretty broad. Number one, if you live in Portland and you answer yes to any of the following, you qualify for free service here. And what free service with us means is you're going to get six or seven visitations in a calendar year and you the the client the individual can decide how quickly they'd like to use those or if they'd like to spread them out over over the year so if a person lives in portland and they have children 18 or younger in their household they qualify so that's obviously hundreds of thousands of families in portland qualify so if you have children you qualify if the that, but sorry, so that's just a, you, that just if, it doesn't have anything to do with the finances. We, we it's just not, if you have you kids, know, we are trying to make this as turnkey as possible. If you, um, Frank, I get the question about a lot of well, how do you know if someone needs help? Frankly, if someone's coming down to Sunshine Division, there's a 99% chance, probably 99.8% chance they need the help. Yeah. Um, you know, this it's really not like that. We're not handing out <laughs> steak dinner here. It's yeah. you know, it's pasta and rice and beans and cereal and things of that nature. And so we're not worried about that that potential small chance. We want to make it accessible for people, make it mm-hmm. easy. Um, so families with children, which is our by far our number one demographic. Um, senior citizens, 62 and over. So we see a lot of people are on a fixed income, and the cost of living is is really affecting their ability to you know make ends meet. Um, anyone who's on disability, and then mm-hmm. also veterans. And so it's a, it's a it's a you know with a city of 600,000 people, there's hundreds of thousands of people that potentially meet those requirements. And so, um, but our our primary our two highest demographics for sure are families with children, and then also senior citizens okay. that are that are having. 
And then do you just focus on Portland or do you, and and if so, do you think that coverage area might grow? Because you also mentioned that you are moving locations or is it adding? adding. adding. So, well, to answer the first question with the food pantry that we have here and and we'll get into the part where we're, we're hoping to open our East side location here this fall uh, out towards the Eastern edges of Portland. um, We service people that live in Portland. Having said that, we also provide emergency food boxes to a number of other nonprofits and law enforcement that are outside of Portland and suburbs nearby. We also provide bulk food to about 25 agencies that are in and around Portland as well that then help people outside. So being that our you know shopping experience is, you know, Portland's a pretty large city, 600,000 people, we do limit the coming to our facility for that, but we collaborate with a lot of charities. We also... Um, work with about 75 nonprofits, some of which uh, are in and border around, whether it's Portland or the Multnomah County, Plaquemines County, that can refer families here as well. So we actually get a lot of families referred to us who technically don't live in Portland, but they've been referred by another social service agency that we've vetted. So when we do our holiday food box program as well, we build 3,500 holiday meals, which is pretty massive undertaking, mm-hmm. about 1,400 of those we distribute with charities outside of Portland, outside the metro area. Circling back to your original question, how do we work outside the metro area? It's typically through other partnerships with schools and social service agencies and governmental agencies like law enforcement or fire departments, things mm-hmm. like that. And then in our facility here in North Portland, when people come and visit us, it's primarily for people that live in within Portland City Limits, unless they've been referred by another charity. So, okay. And then do you think that'll change at all as you move east? So our hope, and we're unveiling it here today, this is the world premiere <laughs> of this, but it, it's sort of been a well, not too well-kept secret, but we're working on a lease right now on a facility out on Stark, Stark Street, not far from David Douglas High School. And the reason we targeted that part of Portland is, number one, the, the shifts in affordability of housing, but also... Uh, the four school districts that touch the east side of Portland, east of I-205, all have uh, over 73% of the children are, are eligible for free and reduced lunches and breakfasts at those schools. And so it's, wow. it's painfully obvious that that's where the need is in Portland. Yeah. And what our hope is, what we're going to do is we're going to expand to serve not just Portland, but any of the zip codes that then border into, whether it's Gresham, Fairview, uh, Milwaukee, any, any of the zip codes because there's, you know, where the city lines get drawn and That's things like great. that aren't, aren't yeah. per, they're not perfectly, you yeah. know, it, it's not always perfectly clear. So if someone's in one of those zip codes that borders both, we're going to slowly start expanding out a little more. But also, we know there's a lot, there's a, there's just such a huge gap on that side of town mm-hmm. with regard to what social services are available. So we're also going to do a lot of outreach. With, I've already had a meeting with David at the school district to make sure uh, we're in front of all their counselors, and so the goal will be go, to go to Centennial, to go to Park Rose, um, you know, to go to David Douglas and and Reynolds, and really meet with those, particularly in those schools, because we just know the, the the level of poverty is so much higher. To, um, to kind of put that in perspective, you know, I think uh, my my stats as, as I as I flip through <laughs> it right here, my I believe it was yeah, as I'm learning, 76.8 percent of kids in David Douglas School District qualify, mm-hmm. which you know, is more than three out of four. Conversely, Portland hovers uh, around 46%, which is not great, but it's considerably better. Um, Beaverton and Tigard are about about 36, 37%. Tualatin's a little lower than that. Westland and Lake Oswego are considerably lower. So it doesn't take a sociologist to know as you head east of the river, 
the the need just grows. And why? And so why do you think that is? I mean, a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, I've heard multiple times that poverty is moving east, and I'm kind of curious mm-hmm. about about why. Um, yeah. And then yeah, I mean, why don't you just talk about that? Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll jump in, and, and I don't. I, I don't claim to be an expert. I just know what I've learned, what I've read, and different things. I mean, the big thing is right where we are now used to be one of the most affordable parts of Portland, and it's not any longer. And we are in North We're Portland. We're in North right Portland, now. not not far, just north of the arena uh, at the Moda Center, almost to miss kind of historic Mississippi Street district. You know, not far from Alberta Street. And um, I've lived in Portland since I left U of O in '97, and back in 1997. Not only was this uh, affordable, it was frankly it was it was kind of the epicenter of, of poverty in Portland, and um, you know you had a lot of gang issues in this part of town, and um, it it just was a very you know there's a lot of challenges for the neighborhoods around here. Fast forward 20 years later, and you know if you were walking around on Mississippi Street or on Alberta Street, those are those are like tourist destinations practically, and and small turn of the century. Houses are extremely, extremely expensive. And just so the cost of housing has exploded so much and these neighborhoods have massively changed. You also had the Adidas World Headquarters, you know, get planted in North Portland about a half a mile from here. That dramatically changed the neighborhood. So you had a lot of people that were working there that wanted to be closer. It was affordable. And, and, and you know, just gentrification has taken hold. So that's sort of what's happened right around us here. But just as a whole, the cost of living in Portland, whether you're in Portland proper or nearby sub, you know, suburb, has shot up exponentially. So it's touching everywhere. So what you have and what I see is that east of 205, you have this pocket of Portland that not that in that distant past was, was annexed. And those neighborhoods, they don't have as many social services. There's, uh, there's not as much. The infrastructure is not as good. And when it, when it got annexed, it sort of was a forgotten part of Portland. You'll, you'll read that in the newspaper a lot. A lot of people that are upset with City Hall because, you know, not all the roads have sidewalks. Not all the roads are paved. And as such, that part of the city is just, it's suffered. And it's not, it hasn't been treated with the same level of care, the same level of urban, you know, revitalization. As other parts, I mean, again, when I moved here in 97, the Pearl District was a new thing, and that used to be, you know, very warehouse, industrial, kind of rough part of town as well. And now it's, you know, it's very fancy and very nice mm-hmm. and upscale. And so some parts of city have gotten investment and development, and some have not. And I think East Portland, on on average, would say they haven't, they, those those neighborhoods haven't received the same, same level of investment, and they've suffered as such. And, well, thank um, you for going out there because that's yeah. really important. So now you have a food bank and you do a lot of other things like getting mm-hmm. food out there. So, and I, a, an original question I had earlier was the the about the lunch program, sure. um, and and your backpack. But um, so did the lunch program just get cut from Portland Public Schools though? Because do you want to talk about that? I'm not completely. I'm, I'm, I guess I would say I'm not, I'm not at liberty to discuss what Portland Public does or doesn't do. I know that federal funding, schools are very concerned about what's going to happen with the availability. Um, you know, to, to be blunt with the new administration, schools are worried that the funding is going away for the free and re- reduced programs. Some schools have free breakfast in the morning. 
Um, also, uh, in the past, and this is one that many of the schools, especially the low-income schools, are worried about, it used to be that over a certain threshold, above if over 80% of your students were qualified, they would just make it available for all. If You mean if everybody qualified? Correct. They were, well, not everybody. Essentially, but, okay. it was uh-huh. for the whole school. There was no longer a qualification. So there wasn't any like red tape or anything Correct. to go through. Correct. If you crossed a certain threshold, they just made it available for all because the, there was such a huge population in, in the schools percentage-wise. And there's concern that that availability to do that as well as going away. You also have the issue of a handful of schools have summer programs as well. Uh-huh. Well, and, and there's concern that that's all. So there's just there's a much like with healthcare. Well, let me let me just interject before people get all excited about this because that's kind of a broad it's kind of broad to think that all of them would mm-hmm. go away. It's not that they're taking away the food per se. It's just that you have to you just have to sign up for it, right? And you have to be eligible the for eligi- it. It's versus... the eligibility requirements, what those thresholds will be. Will there all, I mean, there's many layers to it. Will there still be breakfast programs? Will there still be summer programs? What will the qualifications be? Is it going to be harder for, for working poor to access this? Because, you know, all of those things, and a lot of it is up in the air. Yeah, and the only thing I would, that I know about, when anybody who is an immigrant or a refugee has to fill out paperwork, that just might not happen. And I do know that for multiple reasons, because my sister-in-law happens to be a refugee. And it's also a cultural thing. A lot of them don't do paper. It's a verbal kind of cultural thing. And then, But also you have to think about the just the whole thing about signing something when you're if you're undocumented so how are we going to feed these yes. kids so i've got two, two anecdotes about that that i'd love to share one is there is a portland police officer who specifically does outreach to, to refugee families because there's a concern that you have um, families that have come here they don't understand the rule of law oftentimes they've been in war-torn countries and their perception of what law enforcement is you know it's a mm-hmm. very different Sure. <laughs> you know, the law enforcement may be military mm-hmm. there, and you, mm-hmm. if you're on the wrong side of that, that can be, you know. So very, very sad, very different situation. So a goal to reach out to those communities to get them integrated into how the world operates here in Portland. And just some of the stories I've heard from her about when they do these sort of educational, basically it's classroom setting meetings, and they'll bring Sunshine Division food boxes as well and make sure that they bring flyers that are in many languages so that hopefully families can access the service. But just hearing her share those stories of how traumatic that is to come to a new country when you have to remember they didn't get refugee status unless it was it was just atrocious circumstances where they came from. It's, you know, it's genocide, it's civil war, mm-hmm. it's people being pushed out of their country for religious reasons. It's, you know, none of it is is anything that I think the average American could probably understand. And so those people have left those countries. Oftentimes they've lost a spouse in the process. The number one demographic is single mothers with their children, and the husbands usually they've been forced into uh, to join the military mm-hmm. in, in said uh, conflict, or sometimes they've been murdered. And so the families are dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. They're coming to a new place. They don't speak the language. Uh, they may or may not be literate. They mm-hmm. may or may not have uh, some form of mental issue that they're dealing with from where they there's come from, or trauma. physical trauma. Um, so there's a whole litany of issues they're dealing with. And, oh, by the way, they're in their new country. They most likely don't speak English. 
they certainly don't write English. So all of those barriers, to your point mm-hmm. of, here, fill this out. Yeah. So if they speak Spanish by chance, if maybe if they speak Vietnamese, they can get it translated. And some of the school districts translate into Somalian. Mm-hmm. But we just only named three of potentially how many languages, you know, could, be, mm-hmm. could there not be. Um, my second anecdote. So, it's, so there's just a lot of barriers. A lot of it's issues. Tough. Yeah. The other part is I'm, so I've been working with David Douglas School District, and you, you may have heard they're the most racially diverse school in the state, the mm-hmm. high school. Um, I believe I read that there was over 120 native languages that are wow. in the school. So again, for the school, this is what I've heard from them. They don't have the resources to translate <laughs> into 120. I mean, how would how would a school do that? Uh-huh. They would have to send out every single communication, and and so again, they have to pick and choose what can get to the most students. But there's going to be there's going to be people who fall through the cracks, and that's kind of where we come in. That's why we try to make it turnkey to make it easy. There's not a lot of, when I say there's not a lot, there's little if any red tape to sign up for mm-hmm. our services, to access our services. But but those families that are, and, and a lot of, I guess I would say a lot of people also don't know, you know, there's approximately 100,000 people that live in Oregon that are refugees from other countries. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's basically like tigered. Mm-hmm. If all of tigered... If you mm-hmm. can imagine how many people that is, you know, that's how many refugees live in Oregon. And most of them are concentrated in the Portland metro and the Salem area. And so th- those people are just going to have a lot of barriers and they're here. They're going, they're going to live here. We want to integrate them into our communities and we want to make it, uh, you, you know, you want to make it as positive a process as possible. And we want to feed them <laughs> if we can. Them. You want their children to acclimate and get any, you know, you've mentioned you have a family member, um, you know, my, my wife was adopted. She's from another country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she remembers coming here as a small child, mm-hmm. not speaking not speaking English. Yeah. But, and it's, it's actually easier on the children in some ways because they can pick up language quicker. But mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it's And maybe the, the trauma bounces off them a little better. They acclimate better. But with adults, it's really, you know, it's. Can you, I always say the opposite. Can you imagine being dropped into, uh, you know, perhaps a, a country in Africa tomorrow and not speaking the language and not understanding the characters that they write mm-hmm. with and not knowing the, the, the culture or well, the customs and not being that really, all, all of those things yeah. that are not. And oh, by the way, you've got seven months to figure it out. Well, Go. and you've just been through hell is Correct. why you're even dropped in there. Correct. That's you, the you, aren't there you aren't there on vacation. You're there because something terrible happened where you come from. And all of those, those are just, I mean, it's, it's horrific things. And, so I feel honored when we're able to help those families right. because, you know, they didn't come here because they felt just because they felt like, you know, moving to America. That wasn't it. They, they, they left because they had to because their life was at risk. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, they were able to get likely to a U.N. camp and likely they were able to they were essentially they won the lottery mm-hmm. got to come to America. And so, you know, it's um, but it's 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 a sad and traumatic thing. And, you know, it's it's kind of an honor to be able to help those people uh-huh. because it's you know, you know whether it's whatever the reason they came here, it it most likely was was really traumatic. So how would you fill in the gaps, like literally on site at the schools, especially if they do, they're not taking the food away, they're just um, the biggest thing is the referral program to get the families because there's also a stigma for those kids. So there are some schools that do they, the teachers will be able to put a little like a sack lunch basically in the kids' backpacks on the weekend. Which is nice, and they keep it pretty anonymous. Um, 
but more importantly, we want to be a resource that's more than just an occasional, you know, occasional bag of this or occasional food box there. We, want, we would like to get the families to access the service and know that they can come and see us seven times and know that they can get a tremendous amount of clothing and know that they can fill the grocery cart. And, and in addition to that, know that they can sign up for a holiday food box or maybe a Thanksgiving meal, or we also have our summer food box program for kids as well. And so part of it is just making sure that the schools know that the resource is there and it's 100% free because mm-hmm. we already know they've, they've, they've checked the box of being a qualifier. Do you mm-hmm. have kids? Well, schools deal with kids and families. And so we, we really try to work with counselors because they're the, you know, they're on the front line. They're the ones that are trying to help the mm-hmm. families. Um, we also try to work with school resource officers a lot because they're the ones, you know, they are, they're identifying a lot of these, these challenges mm-hmm. as well in, in the schools too. But and so you mentioned the summer lunchbox program. Mm-hmm. So it's summer now. So we, we've kind of actually just skipped. We've kind of gone deeper into the issue than even just focusing on some things that some people might not know. Yeah. They might not realize how hard it is. We went deep. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we do here. The deep dive. It's like 60 minutes. Yeah. Um, but we kind of skipped over something that, um, I had never really thought about, which was that in the summer, it's hard for kids to get fed. So, so, I mean, you always think about food and giving food during the holidays, but sometimes even just in December, they do have two weeks of school, but it's not like we should not give food during the holidays, but it seems like food banks can get forgotten in the summer because of the vacations and whatnot. And then the kids aren't even being fed. Every once in a while, I come up with a, I like to say something witty or something. I came up with the quote one time, and people said, that, that makes sense. I said, hunger is not seasonal. Mm-hmm. That is a good I, quote. I it's almost like a tagline. I people say, wow, that's like. Brilliant. You know, I don't want to say it's <laughs> profound. But, but the reason I say that is we, we, we have to turn away volunteers from Thanksgiving to the uh-huh. okay. we have, The phone rings off the hook, and it's like, it, it almost, in some ways, it's almost sad. It's like, you realize there's other times of year. People are still hungry in February. Yeah. And with regard to school, absolutely. So we actually entered into a partnership with uh, Safeway and their foundation a few years ago. We call it our, our kid, kid-friendly kid summer food box. And we with a grant from Safeway, Safeway completely funds it. And then we have a few other local food companies like uh, Bob's Red Mill and Dave's Killer Bread that have supported it with some food. Mm-hmm. We'll create a thousand of these, as I call them, sort of kid-friendly. Your average 12-year-old should be able to get into this box and really work with this food. Some real easy staples, you know, there's, there's going to be bread and there's going to be tuna fish and peanut butter and, you know, maybe some spaghetti and some spaghetti sauce and some fresh fruit and some things like that. So stuff that we can put into a family with children's pantry in the summer. Mm-hmm. And then we're also going to make sure that we have referral. We have the information on our organization in four languages, a flyer that it says you have family in your house, their children, you qualify, and here's how you can, and you want to make, again, spell it out crystal clear, this resource is there. The reason is pretty simple. Um, as I talked about, those schools before where basically three, quarter, three quarters of the kids are accessing free and reduced lunch. I mean, what do those children do in the summer? Right. So, some of the schools have a program, and what I would say by that, uh, none of them run all summer long. Mm-hmm. There's always a gap, usually at the start, usually at the end. Also, their one meal, many mm-hmm. of these kids are getting two of their, maybe only two meals a day at their school. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, 
Well, you have young kids. Like, would how you, do you get Would there? you let your young kid walk three miles each way to a school? Well, see, I would not. Everybody but lives some people the, might, and then know, that's another danger. Not yeah. school officer. Not everyone lives across the street from their school. Yeah. You know, uh, my son, eight-year-old, third about a mile from school. I don't think I'd let my eight-year-old walk on a busy road and things like. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. you know. So there's all those factors of is it safe? Is it accessible? It's certainly not going to be there all summer. It's just the the issue of, of poverty and hungry and hung, hunger is so prevalent in our city. I don't think people understand that. So when I say, you know, when I say it's not, it's not seasonal. I'm all, I'm saying that to people need to be aware. There's mm-hmm. an awareness piece here that, um, you know, hopefully people listening to this go, mm-hmm. oh gosh, I never, I hear that all the time. I never thought of that. So, but know? what can they do now? Then this is a bigger question, a two part question. Mm-hmm. What can they do now? Because there's really only three weeks left yes, of summer. Back to school. But um, so, but still, when you're hungry, three weeks is a long time. So, yeah. what could people do now? And then later on, what can they do throughout the year? Okay, so well, I guess there's basically there's there's three ways you can get involved with any food relief charity, and you know I'd love to sound the horn for Sunshine Division, but there's you know there's there's school food pantries, there's you know obviously there's soup kitchens and homeless facilities that serve a hot meal, and there's you know there, there's a wide variety of ways you can help. But for an organization like ours that has a food pantry, number one, well let me people just, can volunteer. The one thing is yeah. is maybe why people might choose you is yeah. because of your you're definitely giving to families yeah so, so, so you know people that. would know it would go yeah to so no, number maybe. one i guess to give us to give our pitch if you will why why sunshine division number one everything we do here is completely free if you donate your time your food or your money to us if a family accesses our building which as i said before families with children may absolutely they, they have qualified for our services Everything we do here is completely free. Conversely, if we give bulk food to another charitable agency, uh, if we give food boxes to another agency, if we give a holiday food box to another social service, that's completely free. There is no charge. There is no pass-through. There is no quid pro quo. Everything we do is completely charitable. That is not always the case in the food relief industry. Um, so I point that out. Everything you do, if you donate your time or money here, you know it is it is very client or family centric. Making that word up, but um, also we are <laughs> like we are a uh, yeah. Make, I make up like my own, up my own jargon. <laughs> so I'm working around all these cops. They have their own jargon. Yeah. <laughs> the other part is I would say um, don't take our word for it that we're efficient. We uh, Charity Navigator is a really well respected. Uh, organization that that's approximately 7,000 nonprofits across the world. We are a charity navigator, four star charity for mm-hmm. the fifth year straight. Yeah. Four star, also, four stars is their highest rating. There is no five okay. star. <laughs> uh, important to point that out. Five years in a row, my understanding that's is awesome. 7% of the charities that they vet uh, internationally can say that. To my knowledge, and granted, I haven't looked at every single lot, to my knowledge, we are the only food relief organization. In the Northwest, that can say wow. And, cool. and to be clear, primarily that's. Our, a, it, it, I mean, it's, it's it, cool for you, but it's then great. it's like, is it cool for other and, organizations? And I don't know. Part of it is just how we do business at Sunshine Division. Mm-hmm. We're a very small staff. You're in a 90 year old building right. that was yeah. essentially donated to us by the city, so our overhead's very low. We rely heavily on volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, Almost all of our food is donated. Unfortunately, a lot of food relief organizations have to buy food, mm-hmm. and that drives their costs up. So we're we're very we're lean and mean and scrappy. Mm-hmm. And you come to this building, 
it's a little old, it's a little run down, but we get we get we get a lot of people helped, a lot of people fed, a lot of clothing out, and we help a lot of other agencies too, and and it's truly charitable. Um, the last handful of years, about ninety three cents on the dollar donated to our organization goes to our mission. So, kind of part of our the pride of what we do is we we are lean and mean, and that that charity navigator four star rating five years in a row speaks to that. So mm-hmm. I'm always proud to tell people, you know, that if you support us, whether it's with your time, your money, or a food contribution, you know, it's it's going to the intended purpose. Also, then knowing that families with children is our number one demographic. Right. Sure. If you if you care about cool. families and kids in Portland, that's our number one demographic we serve. Um, whether, mm-hmm. like I said, whether it's people coming to the food pantry here, whether it's our disease kids, which is kind of better known as a shop with a cop getting kids school clothes um, with a police officer, or whether it's a meal at the holidays. I mean, all of those things, we're never charging anyone. It's free for people to participate in. You know that your money's being used wisely. And, uh, you know, 90 plus years, we've got a pretty good track mm-hmm. record of helping, <laughs> you know, literally you know, hundreds of thousands, if not over a million yeah. people in that time. And you're going to help more now with your new location, too, Correct. your additional Yeah, location. that's that's the, I'm excited about that because we're going to where the need is. And we were talking about that off, you know, before we started here, off camera, I guess, or whatever. But, you know, um, just north of the Rose Quarter and the Moda Center, uh, there's just been this crazy metamorphosis and the need is shifting and mm-hmm. we, we're, we're responding to that. A lot of charities would not be nimble or wouldn't have the capability uh, that we have. Mm-hmm. We're, we're making, it's, it's a leap for us. It's a stretch. And so we need the community to step up and support us more because we're, we're going into uncharted territory here. We're, we're opening up a second facility. So 90, you know, 94 mm-hmm. years of one facility. Yeah. <laughs> it only took us 94 yeah. to make that <laughs> But we saw the need, smart. and it took us it took us a little over yeah. a year to how are we going to do this? We're not we're not jumping into the pool without looking, mm-hmm. but um, but it's obvious too. It's so obvious yeah. that the need is out there. So we're not going to leave this old this old I call it the old barn here in North mm-hmm. Portland, our old warehouse. Um, we're going to keep that. So it's adding a second facility because because also if, if you lived out you know in Rockwood, that's a long drive from Rockwood to mm-hmm. you know down here by the by the broadway bridge it's you know that's that could be a 40 minute drive on on some days or what if you or more that, depending or, on if it's a yeah, friday yeah and mass transportation you know if you're on max or, or or the bus or whatever so you so you were talking and i interrupted you about how, i think you said three ways people can help yeah so i mean in our opinion maybe there's a fourth you can come up mm-hmm. with i mean i guess advocacy could be a fourth but i mean mm-hmm. people can give in three ways there, there's volunteerism we're open six days a week. Our new facility is going to be open as well. We have volunteers in here on a daily basis, whether that's helping clients directly, whether that's sorting food in a warehouse or stocking shelves. I mean, basically, we run a retail operation and a warehouse and do an intake, uh, you know, many, many hours a day each each day. So having volunteers participate in that keeps that overhead down. So if you're interested in being a regular volunteer, we could use your help. Okay. Uh, so Does it have to be regular? I mean, so I'm thinking, because it's a two-part question, what can yeah. we do in the summer? Sure. And I'm just thinking, what? I so wonder gr- if my kids would so come So groups volunteer. also volunteer. Um, we have, in, like, in the evenings for sorting of food and things like that. So, so yeah, it's a great question. So there are regular volunteer, like, shifts, um, you know, that people, like, 
work, whether it's in our pantry or our warehouse, things of that nature. And then there are group sort of one-time experiences. And again, before, like we turn, we have to turn people away in December at some point because we can't have 10 groups every day. You know, there's mm-hmm. only so much space. Um, and so people, whether you have a service organization, school club, corporate group, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's great for corporate groups to come out and come out in a group of 10 or 12 or 15 or whatever, come out and do something together. And then suddenly the light switch goes on with people that work in a company say, gosh, our company should support this. And so mm-hmm. sometimes that's the sort of the domino that tips over first. People come out and volunteer. And they can come out anytime. And so if they're looking for, if they're slower in the summer, maybe they can come out. Correct. Or even in the or summer. Whatever. I would, yeah. like I say, I would just say there, there's the other 10 and a half months a year. Right. And let's, <laughs> let's think about those times. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be today or tomorrow. So, yes, individual, regular volunteers, group volunteers that are that are pre-arranged with our volunteer coordinator. Um, so that's one way to support volunteerism. Absolutely, we need volunteer help. We also have to collect and then distribute a few, you know, millions of pounds mm-hmm. of food. And so people that are willing to do a food drive on our behalf, and you would be amazed. Oh, food drive. People, some okay. people say, how could we do that? What would you do? And... We had a group of a uh, small group of seven or eight private schools that raised a year supply of macaroni and cheese. They Aww. called it the Mac Attack. That's awesome. A little group of, you know, the Mac Attack. The Mac Attack, <laughs> and that was, you know, that was elementary That's and so middle cool. school kids. Conversely, we have a barber shop. The barbers, you, know, you being, it's their their slogan is where guys go. So I'm assuming you don't go there, but maybe mm, Mike goes there. The barbers haircut <laughs> chain. Uh-huh. They, um, you you think, oh, well, how can a haircut chain for men raise? Well, what do you do when you get a haircut? You pay at the end, and mm-hmm. you probably give a tip or whatever. They put up a pyramid, a little display of peanut butter. They put our barrel there, and they encourage their customers for six weeks to donate an extra dollar or more mm-hmm. when they check out to get peanut butter or, or peanut, peanut butter. Or and peanut then, butter. And it's kind of cool to pick one tangible item because mm-hmm. people can wrap because their it. heads around it and be like, oh, I'm going to go buy some mac and cheese today. Correct. Uh-huh. And, or, and the challenge we always run to is, you know, when, when you're walking down the street, do you just reach into your purse and pull out, insert food, on, you know, rice or whatever? Yeah. No, you don't. But pulling a dollar out or rounding right. up a bill or whatever, who, who can't or won't give a buck? And the answer is, Everyone will if you ask and you're proactive. So it's funny. Two of our best drives are places that you wouldn't think would, oh, would, would mm-hmm. have great success. And, mm-hmm. and with the, the barber's drive, they raised over 25,000 jars of peanut butter last year. That's and so, amazing. You know, Advanced Credit Union does a tuna fish drive around the holidays. The city has done a cereal drive. So people, the number one question is, do you care and will you get excited about it? And will, will you share that with your, your network? And the network could be a church. It could be a school. It could be a business. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways. We, mm-hmm. If someone wants to do a food drive, we want them to call us because we can, we can share the roadmap that other people have already done. Yeah, and that's a great way for business to get other exposure. You look good in the community. It's a good thing. You know, you don't always want to brag about yourself on social media. I'm <laughs> yeah. guilty of it. But, I know what you mean, though. Um, the humble brag, right? Yeah, yeah. always. Um, but if a business is helping somebody else, then it doesn't look so braggy. And as you may have learned or know, as, as a PR professional, uh-huh. not, well, I guess I would say some charities are more controversial than others. I doubt you're going to find someone that thinks providing peanut butter for kids mm-hmm. is controversial. Yeah. <laughs> the, the likelihood of someone saying, oh, that's, that's hogwash, I would never support that, awfully mm-hmm. low, right? We're pretty universal, basic need. 
we're we're extremely well vetted. We're like mm-hmm. we're the you know we're four star check. We're no one's gonna go. Gosh, I wouldn't want to be associated with feeding those kids. Yeah, you know, like it's it. So it's also not controversial. It's a no brainer. It's local too, which I think that's a lot of our most passionate supporters. They get it's local. I work here. I live here. My my customers are from here. My employees are from here. I don't want to raise money for some charity where we're sending it, you know, to the home office in New York or Chicago. Oh, yeah. You know, so that's the other part that's cool about this is you can see it. You can come down to our warehouse as Mm -hmm. as you walk in here and there's people in the lobby that are getting helped and there's forklifts moving the food around the warehouse. And there's, you know, just earlier this morning, we had one of the local partners we work with their, their charity, they were showing up with their truck and we were loading. I mean, you can see it. You Mm -hmm. can touch it. It's tangible. And so, so is the help. You fill that barrel and you see that it's full of, you know, say pasta or whatever, you know that you help that many people. So it's kind of cool because it's concrete. Yeah, it's, it's visual. You can um, wrap your heads around it. And yeah. to your point of social media, just saying, look at the staff and how much, and oftentimes people, they, they make it even less about them and it's more about their customers because that's who they're asking. It's usually the people they interact with. And so in the case of the barbers, they're the conduit. They mm-hmm. cut people's hair. When those people check out, they say, would you, li- would you like to support this? And granted, the barbers, obviously, they contribute to it as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's really because they're customers. Well, I mean, and they're going above and beyond just by asking. So right. it's huge. They're, they're, going, they're out of their comfort but, space for a second. So anyone who has and a location. A too. And, yeah, any sort of retail time. I mean, even if you weren't a retail location, but yeah. Yeah, because the school is not quite retail. Right. No, it's not. So they just have connections. Neither are service organizations and things like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, so we, we have a wide variety. Whatever whatever industry you're in, I could probably give you an example of, mm-hmm. of someone doing something good. And, and again, even better if it's not at the holidays. Mm, okay. And good. we'll give you the barrels. People, yeah. We'll bring you the fancy barrels. Yeah. And we'll pick them up when they're full. So it's pretty turnkey. If uh-huh. you if you can sort of sound the alarm, do the you know if you can do the social media, if you can put up a poster in your in you know in your break room and ask your clients, customers, whoever. It's really not that. Yeah, difficult. and I remember that because we did that once with Windermere, and mm-hmm. it was really easy. I because I was kind of mm-hmm. on some of the organi- organization side, and it was just. Super easy. Yeah. So, and then what? What's the third way people can help out? Money. Yeah, of course. Donate. Save the best for last. No. Yeah. As they say, cash is king. Um. Obviously, financial contributions keep the machine. You know, keep us running. While our building was donated to us by the city, which is wonderful. That's why part of why our overhead is so low. We have, you know, we have a small staff. We benefit that staff. We have a light bill. We have a garbage bill. You know. Um, you know, health insurance keeps going up and, you know, the, the Northwest natural gas, all the things, there's no way to run a charity. I think a lot of people have a misconception that a charity could run on, you know, zero efficiency. Well, yeah, it could, it would, it would be called a volunteer organization mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have the same level of output. Mm-hmm. Conversely, you know, a charity doesn't need to have, you know, thousands of employees and be so bloated that it looks like a mega corporation either. There's a happy medium. So we have a massive staff of 11 people here. Mm. That's three. I say that you can't see me tongue in cheek on that. You know, we have three people that work in a warehouse. We've got to drive trucks out to pick up food donations and drop those barrels and go to corporate grocery stores and things like that to pick up donations. And we've got full-time staff that, as I mentioned, we're here six days a week. So we have a clothing room and our food pantry, which is essentially like a miniature grocery store. And so making sure that clients are 
getting checked in properly with that, making sure we're getting their information, making sure they're going through that process. And then, you know, we have things like accounting and you know being audited. Mm-hmm. So we have to have a person that does financial. And then we have a very small, myself with a few other people that do sort of the fundraising and the grant writing and the, mm-hmm. the PR and things like that. And we're not federally funded. We're not state funded. We do uh, get some in-kind contributions through the police bureau for trucks and some things of that nature. But we're not a line item with the city. So we have to go out and raise essentially mm-hmm. the money to operate the organization, which is, you know, trucks need gas and you know you need insurance for a building and you need you have to pay your staff and you have to buy help and so so there's going to be costs mm-hmm. but we think knowing that 93 cents on the dollar is going to the mission that's a pretty darn good mm-hmm. return on investment so um we think it's almost it speaks for itself that if you invest your donation with the sunshine division you know that we're getting a lot out of that dollar there's not there's not a massive amount of overhead um, obviously, because we're in my fancy office here, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're joking here. My office that was cut out of a, a former conference room, and mm-hmm. it's uh, yeah, it's nothing if not uh, fancy here. So, um, but so yeah, the the financial contributions are really what allows us to really grow and do more. And and you know, with the new space, it's going to take yeah. money to fund that. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk to some people. You know, they talk about well, how, you know, how does a how does a charity survive? Because you don't sell anything. Everything we do is free. It's our service. And I mm-hmm. said, we survive because people give us money. They believe in what we do. And that's how we're able to, you know, to grow the organization. Yeah, right in shock. That new facility, we're going to believe that we will have a lease there and we will need more equipment there and we will, you know, we'll need refrigeration and pallet jacks and things like that. Did you have to kind of kick up your fundraising program to we, get that done? That, that's what we've been in the midst of that, raising more, a lot of grants as well. The nice thing is when you go out and talk to someone about not only are we going to keep doing what we've done for over nine decades, we're, we're hoping to double what we're going to do mm-hmm. in a short amount of time. It's a pretty compelling argument for why they should give you more. And that's really what we're trying to do is go out and tell people we're stretching so can you stretch with mm-hmm. your donation a little bit? Um, and so far, the response has been quite good. Um, also, a few years ago, we added a new event. We actually got a grant to purchase the annual Winter Wonderland light show that goes on at PIR. And mm-hmm. so for about 20 years or so, private individual owned that. We actually got a, capa- a capacity building grant to take that on. So now we have a very successful fundraising event. And uh-huh. so we've operated that for two years. The first two years, we essentially just banked the money and wanted to wait and see how well it went because we're doing this uh-huh. whole new endeavor. Well, after two years, we now know what to expect, and we have set that money aside specifically for the purpose of the expansion. And so, um, so going Great. forward, you know, if you come out and see the light show, you, we will. You see Frosty the Snowman out there and all those fun things. And, and what's that called? The light it's show. It's called Winter Wonderland. Oh, so right. It's the okay. day after Thanksgiving. Um, on Black Friday, yeah. and it clo- we usually close it uh, right after Christmas. This year it closes on the 26th, and you can drive through the PIR. You can't race. You can drive through it yeah. slowly, and there's all sorts of holiday lights, but there's it's very family-focused. I mean, my my son, I think he thinks he's a VIP because he gets to go out there a lot. And, yeah. You know, there's the dinosaurs, and there's, uh-huh. you know, there's you know, ski jumping and caribou that go over the top of your car and things mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, it's a, a little bit of everything, but it's... Uh, um, it's kind of one of those Portland traditions. Yeah, you got you got, got the zoo and Peacock Lane and the grotto, and this is just another one, another way to see the lights. And perfect. So we've been adding to that, but the the proceeds from that because it's yeah. been very successful. Um, we are directly pushing that towards this this East Portland yeah. facility. So we're Good. so we're not a 
uh, we didn't we didn't jump in without a plan. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> and you're needed plan. out there. So yeah. so thank you for doing that. Yeah. Well, thank you.